Woomajika. My name is Larry Walsh and I'm an elder of the Tunnerong people and an elder of the Kulin Nations. And we at Footscray Arts Centre, we acknowledge we are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Warrawung people and the Boomerang people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that live in the western suburbs. We also pay our respects to all elders throughout the various communities that live in the western suburbs. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre, platforming artists, creatives and stories outside of the mainstream. Hi everyone and welcome to FCAC Radio. My name is Vaishnavi Vijayakuma and I'm the Marketing Manager at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Shortly, you'll be listening to an interview with Jinghua Qian, a Shanghainese writer living in the Kulin Nations. They work across verse, prose, performance and broadcast. They are the Vice Chair of Peril, a magazine for Asian Australian writing, arts and culture and sit on the Arts Ambassador Committee for Maribyrnong City Council. They will be performing at FCAC on Friday 30th April as part of SMUT, Queer Erotic Fan Fiction Salon, a co-presented event with CC Screens for the Midsummer Festival. Welcome, Jinghua. It's great to have you here. Really excited to be here. We had a bit of an interesting detour to try and get into the podcast studio this time because pretty much the entirety of Henderson House at FCAC is under construction, but we're here and we're ready to record. Yeah, I was like, oh, I know where I'm going. Oh, wait, it's completely covered in scaffolding. (laughs) Given the context of your performance at FCAC, I'm going to start the dirty talk early. Do you have a favourite piece of queer erotic fiction? Uh, Lately, I've been reading a piece called um, Unsentimental by Fox Bones, which is in the fandom for The Happier Season. Uh, The Happier Season is a lesbian rom-com that came out late last year and I think most people have a lot of problems with it. Um, I think the central relationship maybe wasn't that well done. Um, So this, uh, so a lot of the fandom um, for that film, um, a lot of the fanfics are kind of fix-its where they kind of create... uh, yeah, where they focus on on different relationships. Um, so, unsentimental is one that uh, is about a relationship between Sloane, who's kind of the bitchy, uptight sister, um, and Riley, who's the um, ex of the love interest. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's very beautifully written and also quite hot. <laughs> I mean, anything with case to you is always going to be hot. Anything with what? Case to you, Kristen Stewart. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah but I feel like she's like she's wasted on her love interest in that movie. Like, she's, Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm really sad yeah. to hear that. Do you think it's still worth watching? Um, I have like an extremely large appetite for queer trash um, and rom-coms, so I think it's worth watching even if it's just to um, to pick apart. Um, yeah, I also, I don't know, I always say like sometimes it's more fun to hate watch things than to watch things you enjoy, you know. <laughs> like and I saw it at um, at the Coburg Drive-In and 
uh, with, you know, so many queers in the cars around all like screaming and heckling um, and if it had been in an open cinema, I'm sure we all would have been like throwing popcorn at the screen and sometimes you need that kind of experience. And what's it like watching a queer film with a predominantly queer audience? Um, I love that. I love that kind of experience where the um, the collective critical energy is as much part of the experience as the film itself, yeah. And how do you feel when you see queer relationships depicted on screen that aren't the best representation of the community? I don't mind, like, representations that aren't positive, you know, like our community has plenty of, (laughs) I don't know, like punishing toxic people like any other. Um, But as long as it's sort of done well, and I think my problem with this film was that, you know, it was, it was a rom-com. That's a, that's a particular convention. That's a particular genre. So you are supposed to be invested um, in the central relationship. And I think a lot of people were just like, oh my God, break up with her. (laughs) I mean, not everything can reach the heights of, but I'm not a cheerleader. Ooh, I don't like that I'm a cheerleader. Shocked, shocked and appalled. Okay, I shouldn't have admitted that. Take that out. <laughs> um, um, but how come? I look. I don't dislike it. I think it's all right. It's just not my favorite. I don't know. What do I not like about it? I'm actually not sure. It's been it's been a long time since I've seen it. But um, no, it has its moments. I do like the um, look. I think it has some like quite cute sex scenes and some funny moments. I think I just, maybe I don't like the protagonist. I don't know. Um, Jinghua is now cancelled. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that was like a really bad thing to admit. <laughs> um, and it's now out there in the ether so you can't take it back. Mm, captured on sound. When you write, do you write for yourself or do you write for the reader? I think I do write for the reader, actually. Um, A lot of writers will say they write for themselves, but I would say the things I write for myself are like, you know, my journal and notes and like, I don't know, just little scraps. But these days, most of my writing, I have a particular audience in mind and a particular, um, often a particular publication. And because I work in quite different um, formats and... um, you know, for for very different audiences. I think that informs how I present the idea. And how have you dealt, if you ever have received, um, negative criticism towards your writing? Um, I haven't a lot. I, I think that most of the criticism I've received has been like pretty um, useful, generous engagement, you know, like it's been debate um, that I'm I'm happy to receive and and um, be part of. I mean, I have been like harassed a bit um, online for few things that I've written, often uh, anything around uh, trans rights and anything around China. There's a lot of like pretty intense and personal transphobia and racism Um and hostility that comes with that space. But for a lot of my other writing, especially literary writing, um, you know, usually either people don't really comment or they're just like, I like it. Um, and then if they do, um, you know, have a, a question or dispute or challenge with my ideas, that's usually like a pretty 
interesting and useful. I think I value that a lot. And how do you navigate um, the intersection between uh, gender and cultural identity? I have no idea. Sorry, I I, I have not. um, What do you mean? I guess it's kind of referring to the comment that you made before around the criticisms from China around some of your writing and I'm wondering whether if any of that has to do with, um, you know, some of the, I guess, the context of the writing that you explore. Sorry, no, I I mean more like whenever I write anything that's sort of commenting on China or the China-Australia relationship, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like, it's quite intense and personal political attacks in that space. But usually it's weird because I, you know, I work, I do a lot of stuff in kind of like an arts and literature space and then other writing that's more in kind of a politics and journalism space. And then I, you know, I write about um, about uh, Chinese-Australian culture and identity and China and gender and queer stuff and... Um, history and, you know, these different things, but the audiences for my work are very different. So I think a lot of the people who um, will read and respond to the stuff I write about, um, say, Chinese politics have no concept of me being like a trans poet. Like they're just not, they're not really intersecting spaces. I remember posting a poem like at the start of last year or something, um, or I think when Melbourne just entered lockdown on my Twitter and someone was like, oh, who wrote this? And I was like, I wrote this. And just all the journalists who follow me had no concept of me as a poet, whereas I'm always like, oh, I'm like a poet, just like masquerading as a journalist occasionally. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, they're, so they're very, um, they're audiences that often don't intersect. And how do you, in terms of your writing process, go between Jinghua the journalist and Jinghua the poet. I love doing that. That's, you know, I think one of the most um, enriching things about being a full-time freelancer is being able to shift between these spaces and I think um, it, it means I'm never bored. I'm always, you know, I've always got something else to do that's activating a totally different part of my brain and also a totally different process, you know, like there's some kinds of writing that are much more um, introspective and kind of isolated essentially. Like poems are just me and the page. Like there's not really much more of a process involved and it, it does rely on sort of inspiration whereas a lot of the other work I do that involves research and reporting, you know, it's like by the time I've completed all the research and reporting, the story's kind of already there. It's so clear to me by that point um, that getting the words out is sort of just finishing it up. Um Whereas, yeah, poetry is like it starts with the words and often like poems for me start with like some, with a sentence that's just stuck in my head. Um, So I really appreciate being able to do these different things and usually like when I get bored of one thing I can start, I can move on to something that feels um, really different as a process and also uh, a different kind of creativity or a different kind of intellect I guess. During lockdown, you took the plunge and became a full-time freelance writer. Has the risk paid off? Yeah, it's been kind of great, actually. Um, I mean, it was really daunting and stressful and hard. Um, but I think, I mean, to be honest, like I think lock, lock, lockdown helped me in some ways. Um, 
because I I went freelance just before the first lockdown in Melbourne, so at the start of March, and that first couple of months were like quite awful because you know I'd I'd um, I'd been doing a lot of reviews, um, like performing arts reviews before that. So I'd booked in a bunch of reviews and then I did, you know, the first four or something. It was while um, while Asia Topa was on and then like all these shows got cancelled um, and then all of these publications that I was pitching to like froze their budgets or were like, oh, we can't pay freelancers because we're getting like less advertising or whatever else um, and then – you know, I work in a few different spaces, but I just kind of felt like, oh my gosh, I'm like trying to pivot to this other thing. And then that thing shuts down. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do some lifestyle stuff. And it was like, no one's paying for that right now. And like, so it just felt really difficult. But then at the same time, um, I think, you know, a few things helped. Um, on the one hand, I think it was just like my living expenses were less during lockdown because I wasn't going anywhere. Like, was literally sitting at home every single day for months, you know, um, and like eating congee and yeah. Um, and I got a, a short residency with, uh, it was, I was liminal and hyphenated projects, um, first writing fellow. So that was really cool to be able to be in that space and just focus on writing, um, uh, out in, in sunshine for a month. And then, um, and then I think because lockdown kind of um, opened up, I think more people's thinking to quite transformative perspectives. Um, I think that was sort of good for me creatively to be like, oh, well, I don't have to think about what I've done before. Like, what do I want to do now? And if I, um, yeah, if I sort of start from scratch in a way, um, yeah, so I sort of created a few different projects that um, I probably wouldn't have in another context. Um, like my friend Liz, uh, Liz Crash and I started Underfoot, um, our Footscray history project. Um, and uh, and I just started, you know, pitching, like I was pitching a, quite a tremendous volume Um so I was just writing and, and doing lots of um, different things and uh, coming up with sort of new ideas and collaborations. So um, it's been it's been hard, but I think now it's now I'm in like a fairly good place, which is really exciting, and I feel very lucky. Yeah. And with your project at Underfoot, which people can find on your website, what's a little known fact about Footscray that everyone should know? I think the thing that I was most shocked to discover in the process of creating Underfoot, um, and this is, a, you know, it's very much um, joint research uh, with Liz. Um, I mean, technically it's in Seddon now, I guess, but that used to be uh, Footscray. Um, the thing I was most surprised by was the fact that there was a, like, fascist bombing um, in the 70s in Seddon, just in that strip where it's now all, like, bougie cafes. Um, so I think, like, next to the fish and chip shop. Yeah, yeah, In that yeah. strip, yeah, across the road from the church. Yeah, so full-on bombing um, took off the roof um, of this Yugoslav travel agency. Um, and it's just, I mean, now we still see now how much um, right-wing terrorism and... Um, 
and white supremacist violence and fascist activity are kind of downplayed. But the the fact that there's like so few people know that, there's not a memorial or anything, there's not any recognition of what seems like a pretty significant event in, you know, sleepy little Seddon. Um, yeah, I was quite shocked by that. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that in the context of the fact Footscray is such a multicultural and it feels like in a lot of ways an inclusive place to think that historically there was a fascist bombing feels a little hard to believe that that's a part of the history of the area. Yeah, but you do still see like fascists in Footscray and you you, you do still see kind of... um, yeah, like neo-Nazis around sometimes and, yeah, it's frightening. But I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've witnessed like pretty full-on scary racial vilification just like on my street. Um, wow. And uh, my a, a friend and I like um, encountered this guy with a swastika tattoo as well like another time. Oh, my there God. There was a, another incident uh, I think uh, in 2019 um, with a guy at the pool. So, yeah, it's it's frightening, um, but it definitely still exists and, and has existed in different forms um, for a while. Do you feel like in the current political climate people feel more comfortable exercising or expressing these fascist views in a more public way? Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest, because... I do think that subsequent governments and media commentators um, have helped enable and embolden white supremacists. But also, you know, I grew up in Australia in the 90s um, with, you know, Pauline Hanson and John Howard. So it wasn't that that wasn't there then as well. And I know that there, you know, that there was like fascist activity um, in Melbourne then as well and obviously being a kid I wasn't as aware of it as I am now. Um, so I think there are a lot of people who've probably studied the the rise and, and can speak to that more. I think for me I, it's hard to see exactly what's changed both demographically and to put that in a political context because I think I'm seeing slices of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what's it like meeting people for the first time when your work is so public? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think these days a lot of the people I meet and encounter, you know, even on like hookup apps or wherever are also um, artists or creators in some right. So that that's kind of nice because, you know, whether someone's like a musician or a, a visual artist or whatever, they kind of get that um, how you kind of manage the blurry boundaries when when your work is is both public and very personal. Um, But, yeah, I've also had experiences, um, I think, of, you know, um, starting a conversation with someone and and being like, uh, would it be okay to, like, meet and have a conversation before you Google me or, like, could you not Google me? And then they've done it anyway and read my work and it's um, it's fine. It's, uh, like... In some ways I'm like I don't know why it bothers me because um, obviously I often meet people who already know my work or where I already know theirs but I think when you are trying to have like a conversation where you're on equal footing and someone doesn't know you and then they like look you up and then you're like oh okay so now you've read you know 
5,000 words of my personal thoughts and I still don't know anything about you beyond like the fact that you have a dog named whatever. Um, (laughs) It just, it's like, oh, there's a bit of an odd imbalance here where you feel like you know me really well and I don't know anything at all about you. Um, So that's sort of tricky to navigate, I think sometimes. And how does the interaction progress from there? Do you find you have to kind of compensate by asking more questions at the start because they seem to have this pre-existing knowledge about you? Yeah. um, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't progress because I'm like, that feels like a violation of boundaries. Like if you tell someone to not read any of your essays and then they do. Um, But if it's like, if I'm um, say I go on a date with someone who already knows of my work, that's not so bad, I think, because it's like, okay, well, you understand that context, you understand you're also meeting me for the first time, so that's a different interaction. And, um, yeah, I, I, I guess it's just it depends how someone, like, what their perspective is on that or what their relationship is to it. But, I mean, often I you know, often I'm also interacting with people where I know their work, you know, because the arts world is so small and the queer, like the, especially like if I'm seeing like queer and trans people of colour artists, like there's not that many of us. A Um, small subsection of a very vast community. Yeah, yeah. So what legacy are you hoping to leave as a writer and a thinker? That's a really big question. Um... I hope to just be part of, I think, heaving the world a little to the left, um, a little further towards justice, Um, but also to just create stories in whatever medium that are intriguing and weird and beautiful and unexpected. In your piece, Sexting at the End of the World for Kill Your Darlings, you talk about your experience of digital dating during lockdown. Are digital-only interactions the new way forward for forging romantic or sexual connections? Yeah, well, in a way, I mean, obviously I love the internet. I love um, online and digital interactions. Um, But I also see the echo of, and and in that piece, um, I think I trace, you know, a lineage um, from, you know, love letters in any century or like dirty letters in any, at any point in time. Um, And, uh, and, and then um, through to sort of queer small press and magazines um, in the 80s, and then to, you know, digital sex now, cyber sex. Um, cyber sex is such an interesting, like, retrofuturistic term, right? Because it's like I was just no one that. says that anymore. <laughs> I was like, cyber sex. I'm like, yeah. God, that seems so 90s. Exactly. Cyber sex is like the 90s interpretation of future sex. Um, and I wonder if, yeah, the way we think about things now um, will also sound really uh, anachronistic at some point later on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I love, uh, the intersection of like the body and technology and sexuality and technology. Um, but I also think that there's something, um, fairly well practiced and a well-trodden path, I suppose, for like, um, for sexting, I guess, for, for textual 
um, erotica. <laughs> um, and have you ever written a dirty or romantic letter to someone? I have written so many dirty and romantic <laughs> letters. Um, like, yeah, an, an incredible number, I think. Um, but this will be, this smart event is the first time I've actually written fanfic. Wow. Yeah. So as an avid consumer of fanfic, what is your approach to writing it? I'm so nervous about it, to be honest, <laughs> because I've been reading it for decades, but I've just not um, written it myself. And I I haven't written fiction at all for a while. So this will be like my first foray in many, many years um, into fiction. Um, but I'm also like part of what I love about fanfic is that um, – it can be beautifully done, but also like it doesn't take itself too seriously. So I think the piece that I'm doing, it's going to be um, a little bit ridiculous for sure. And what do you enjoy more? I guess some of your writing can be quite serious, but some of your writing can be a bit more lighthearted. Do you have a preference for either? I really like being able to do both. I think I'm I'm very much the like the person who's multi-hyphenated just because I'm like have a short attention span and want to you know, I want to do something and then do its opposite the next day. Um, That's what I really enjoy, I think. You're one of those um, artists who are like a slash, slash, slash. It's like performer, writer, artist, um, acrobat. I don't know if you're an acrobat. Maybe you are an acrobat. I'm very not an acrobat. (laughs) (laughs) Sticking to your strengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the strengths are mostly verbal, let's be honest. (laughs) They're not like, I'm not like, you know, skilled in any kind of athletic fashion or... Um, I'm I'm incredibly non-musical. I'm completely tone deaf. Uh, you know, so like I, I'm not like multi-skilled in the sense that I can suddenly take up opera or something. But um, I look forward to your yeah. opera debut. I did write a libretto for wow, <laughs> for just a short piece. I wrote a poem that became a choral piece for um a work by Deborah Kelly called Creation that was one of the wildest weirdest um and most fun things that I did last year she was just like would you like to write um a poem that will become lyrics for this climate apocalypse um you know multi-platform work that I'm creating and I was just like that sounds amazing (laughs) how can I be a part of that Yeah. yeah So to close the interview, Jinghua is going to read a short extract from their article in Kill Your Darlings, Sexting at the End of the World. Take it away, Jinghua. Thank you. Sexting at the End of the World. A couple of weeks into the first lockdown, I start obsessively sexting a stranger off Lex, a text-only queer dating app. Neither of us use our real names or our real bodies, but we use our teeth and fingers and every hole. We exchange spit and sweat, blood and bruises. We boast about the capacity of genital configurations we only have on this small screen. I fist them through the phone. It's a handheld affair, conducted through swipes and taps on a smooth, bright screen that stands in contrast to the sticky urgency of our messages. Quickly, their tone turns plaintive, confessional. Without discussing it, we fall into position, by which I mean... I fall into control. They beg, I withhold. They beg some more, I deliver. Turn by turn, they chance upon exactly the things I like, some predictable, some obscure. 
we seem to understand each other. Our imaginary bodies fit together just so. The torrents of words between us are visceral, intimate and highly charged, yet also somewhat fictive. Our exchange feels like the slash fix I had read breathlessly on fandom forums as a teenager. The desire and intention are real, but the subject is cloaked, projected. At times, I wonder if we're having cybersex or co-writing erotica and whether there's even a difference. Isn't fucking always like writing something together? For me, as a gender-fluid person who grew up on zines and live journal, there's something sentimental and electric about these word-first interactions. It's a thrill to build my body from scratch, to write it into being. Text, interpolation, is a powerful means of gender affirmation, and fucking with the body I write can feel more profound than fucking with the body I was given. It's also a portal to my adolescence. Before the real name internet, when dial-up speeds were too slow to send videos, photos and even emojis, it was always verbose, disembodied missives that made my blood rush late at night in the glow of a computer screen. I often get lost in the slip between text and the body. I've been getting off on reading since I was very young. As a migrant child, English was a private pleasure. Novels, in particular, were a delicious indulgence I hid from my parents, who thought them unserious, especially if the author had the misfortune of remaining alive. In 1999, I met the internet, and I fell hard. I discovered blogs, fandom, queers, and kink. I learned about polyamory and decided, without having dated anyone at all, that I didn't want to be monogamous. In text-only chat rooms, I tried out all sorts of things long before I tested them in the flesh. Later, almost all my serious relationships involved reams of correspondence, pitching the woo one word at a time, through multiple digital and analogue platforms. My most precious possession is my email archives. What I'm trying to say is, I know there's supposed to be a gap between the thing and the story of the thing, but often I can't see it. And for so long, the internet was where I was most myself. I'm often homesick for the internet I grew up with, where the dominant tone was painful sincerity rather than snappy wit, and no one had to have a body unless they wanted one. Online, elves pine for hobbits, and Anne Carson's Sappho folded seamlessly into shipping Willow and Tara. Offline, Asian girls were defined by whether they dated Asian boys or white boys. All other options were unspoken, and I didn't get to be a goth because I already had black hair. On the internet, the facts of my flesh were undisclosed. When I was 15, I spent a few months starting arguments on a neo-Nazi discussion board, which should have been frightening, except that, without any prompting, all the members assumed that I was a white boy progressive. Their misfired insults were easy to brush off. Talking about politics without having to wear my name and my face felt like a dream. After weeks of sexting with my Lex flame... I break the fourth wall and discover that both of us are gender fluid and neither of us is white. It doesn't surprise me at all. It makes sense that we would vibe on this platform where our bodies don't speak for us. Rather than pretending to be someone I'm not, the anonymity of the app allows me to be more candid. And conversely, it also feels more like meeting someone in real life when I'm not dragging around my very searchable name and by extension, my entire internet history. 
In quarantine, every social interaction is deliberate and I miss the unplanned, unavoidable intimacy of living in a city, of standing shoulder to shoulder with strangers on the train. I miss strangers. Thank you so much for coming in, Jinghua. It was such a pleasure to have you here at FCAC Radio. Thanks for having me. So Smart Queer Erotic Fan Fiction Salon is happening Friday 30th April at FCAC. Tickets on the FCAC website have sold out, but there may be some available through Midsummer Festival, if you're lucky. We hope to see you there. It's going to be a very erotic evening. Thanks for listening in to FCAC Radio, produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre and featuring artists from our upcoming program of events. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently-run community arts organisation that supports over 550 creatives annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events, or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, or visit footscrayarts.com to explore and discover more. We appreciate your support and generosity.